0: my very good friend, Dennis Giannouksos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when
2: leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to the Leadership is Changing podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Giannoutsos, and it's great to have you here with me on this episode of the highlights of 2023. Hope your year's going so good so far already in this new year. But I tell you what, I'm so excited about cheering people that I got to interview this year, who have been some real highlights on the Leadership is Changing podcast. Episode 404, Steve Summerfield, and he is a freestyle, or professional freestyle motocross rider, and um, check out that episode, Have, uh, have high standards at all times. Episode 407, Ernie Sander, leading with purpose, crafting your leadership brand story. It's all about your brand, it's your personal brand, and what are you doing with it? In episode 422, Jim Massey, the ABC rule that's always be changing. And it's a fantastic rule. Hey, great guests, great interviews. If you can go back and listen to the full interviews, that will be great. But sit back, enjoy the highlights. Steve, massive welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me, mate. It's great to be on.
1: I've just finished dinner, ran downstairs because we've got this one where I think pretty much exactly the opposite time zones at the minute. Yeah, whereabouts are you in the world today? So I'm living in the very north of Bavaria. I'm about five ten kilometers from the old east west German border, yeah. and been here for about seven years. Here, I had a one year in Berlin, but uh, yeah, just been living in Europe and traveling around. Came for a two month holiday, and I'm still here. Two month
2: holiday. Wow. And I can imagine the listeners right now going, wait a sec, his accent sounds like he's Australian. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. So no, I grew up in
1: Australia. I'm from a tiny town from a dairy farm a couple of hours north of Brisbane oh. and spent probably a good 10 years in Brisbane at university and then uh, met my wife and then we, we had a house there for a while and then, and like I said, then we packed up and moved over to Europe. For two months and then turned into six months, one year, and and
2: we're still here. Wow. And so I've given the uh, listeners a little bit of an introduction to you. You're a professional freestyle motocross rider uh, since 2004. Tell us more about your background.
1: Yeah, well, like I said, I I grew up on a dairy farm, so motorbikes were just part of life. Got to chase the cows and get them in and melt the cows every day. And that was the reason why I didn't end up go racing. All I wanted to do was race motocross. Um, There was a local motocross down at Dundourin. I used to go and watch the Australian motocross championships there. Always wanted to do it, but the cows have to be milked morning and night every day. So dad said there was no chance to go. No chance, one, to buy a bike. And two, he definitely wasn't going to drive me there. So I just built jumps on the farm and those jumps got bigger and bigger and bigger and watched movies like The Crusty Demons of Dirt and things like that where, you know, this explosion of this culture of action sports, you know, that was what, mid-90s when that all came out, when I was a kid and it just got bigger and better and, uh, yeah, turned into a career somehow.
2: Yeah, yeah. yep. And I understand that you're also... You do athlete athlete events and marketing manager, at Freestyle Motocross World Championship, uh, and also you're an athlete manager at In- Invert Management. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, well, it it's funny, you know, it's good that you've got the this leadership podcast. So, I I left high school. My my dad always said, "Go get an education because there's no money on the farm." That is absolutely for certain. And uh, you know, I want to do a few different things, but I. I wanted to be a physio. I couldn't really do that just the way the, the school system was. I had to be in the top 1%. And that wasn't happening. So I kind of backdoored a little bit. I did one diploma, advanced diploma in remedial therapies to go into physio. And I realized at the end of that, I was not interested in it. I was too sore to, to stand around. I, I didn't even have an interest anyway. And then dad said, right, you've got three options then. You get a job in what you've just learned. No. You come back and milk cows for the rest of your life. No. Or three, you go back to university. Right. Good idea. So then I thought, what do I actually, how do I want to live my life? That was kind of the question I had the second time. You know, when you leave school, it's like, what do I want to be? And nobody, unless you really know, most people don't actually know. And then I thought, well, how do I want to live my life? And, And I figured I'll have a lot of broken bones. It's hot in Australia all the time especially in Brisbane. And I thought, well, when I'm 40 and I've got arthritis, all I will want to do is just sit down in an air-conditioned office. And I thought, who does that? Ah, business people. And that was <laughs> it. I went and did a business degree. But I didn't know what I was going to do in that business degree. I had no idea. And in that first year of university, you do, I think it was eight different subjects, and then you choose your majors after that. And marketing, that was, that was pretty easy. I went into the marketing lecture. It was pretty fun. It was kind of like the fun part of business, fine, so I chose that one. And I chose management. I don't know why, it just, there was something about management that, I don't know, just tickled my fancy just that little bit. So I did the, I did the education and I enjoyed it, but I was not interested in working at all. I figured by the time I'd done six and a half, seven years of university, I really wanted to ride my motorbike, hey. and I thought, if I could live that long, like a university bum, with not an awful lot of money, and you know, you know how what it's like to live at university. So uh, I thought I'll I'll try ride my motorbike for a living, and I'll give myself one year. If I've done it for six and a half, I can do one more yeah. and actually enjoy it. And it worked out. From there, it was a couple of years down the line, things worked out very well. And a good friend of mine said to me one day, well, he said to me a lot actually, why don't I use those bloody degrees and diplomas that I'd spent six and a half years on, I thought, well, I'm not interested because riding's a full-time job. You've got to train, you've got to ride, you've got to compete, you've got to perform, everything that goes around it. And then uh, in the end, I decided to do athlete management with two of the best. I didn't know at the time and they didn't either. They would become two of the best riders in the world who were actually my friends as well. So it was just luck. That it all kind of fell into place. So that's how I got into the the management side with athletes and that's where I created my business in management. I managed to convince my wife to quit her job and her career to uh, come and work with me and, and take all of the, the paperwork duties off of my desk so I could continue to ride and still continue to manage them but then she would take over the all the bits that I just had no time for. And so that was how invert management started. Yeah. The the world championships, that all I, I was I rode an event at the World Championships. I was doing their TV. I was a judge. I was helping them with their marketing. I was helping with their press releases because it's a German company, but they're doing world championships. So I was reading their press releases as a fan, as a writer and as somebody who speaks English as a first language, and so I just jumped in and gave him a hand. And fast forward 15 years, I had a great career, loved it. I loved performing all around the world, but I had a big crash. And the, the two owners of this event series, Night of the Jumps it's called, who I had worked for and the reason I'd lived here now in Europe, they asked me if I'd like to work for them. Yeah. And I said no. I said thank you very much. It would be a dream job in ten years time, but I'm a rider. Six months went down the line. I still was still trying to learn to walk and they asked me again if I'd like to work and I said, Thank you. I really appreciate the offer, but maybe in ten years. And after one year, I finally learned to walk again, but I realized I probably wasn't riding professionally anymore. Yeah. So when they asked me the third time, I didn't let that opportunity go this time. I thought they're not gonna ask again. Yes, I will join, and uh, it is a dream job, but it came ten years earlier than I expected. Wow!
2: And hey, tell me, when you say learn to walk again, was that true the accident you had, and then you had to physically learn how to walk again?
1: Yeah, yeah. I uh, I did a show in Birmingham in England, and it was a ten day motorcycle expo, and I'd done it one or two years prior, I think, and so I I knew how the show went. It was a for me, it was a very easy show, but it's draining. We're in a we're in a small arena. We do two or three shows a day, which is no problem. Getting up early, that part definitely I I don't like. <laughs> uh, but the the fumes from motorbikes. I think there were six or sometimes seven of us in this small area. Cool. We're doing shows, and the fumes get to you. By the end of the ten days of shows, you're just absolutely exhausted. It feels like you've been carbon monoxide poisoned almost. Anyway, I got to day eight. I thought I was fine and turns out I was just tired. I made a mistake and I was doing a backflip. And the one trick when I'm when I'm doing this backflip is to reach down for where you sit. Seat, sorry, where you sit on the bike and we have a hole cut out under the seat. And so normally I would grab that. Unfortunately, I was doing this backflip. I missed the grab and I was just hanging upside down under the motorbike. And that was it. I couldn't get back on. So I had a, a rude awakening when I hit the ground. Um, wow. I, I managed to get up under a bit of duress. I just felt winded. But I got up, waved to the crowd. You know, it's the crowd kind of comes for the the spectacle. And if, if there's a crash, it's always a little bit that bloodlust. I, I don't know. So I waved to the crowd. Yep, yeah, it was a bad crash. But I walked it off. It's Okay. And it turns out I broke my back in a couple of places. That part didn't matter. The broken back part was fine. What happened was I broke my hip, but I didn't yeah. know about it for another six weeks. So I walked on broken hip, which was just absolute agony, but they kept telling me it was fine. So I thought I was fine. I was about to come back. I was supposed to ride in eight weeks and I could barely even stand up. And I thought, well, I was two weeks before this next tour to go back to England and I I was considering, do I get somebody to kickstart the bike? If somebody can start the bike, I can physically sit on it and I could probably do a flip. I could probably do a couple of small tricks. It'll, it'll be enough. It'll be fine. I can I can get the job done. Anyway, I found out I'd broken my hip and then that spiraled into finding out how bad the injury really was. And so I had an experimental surgery, thankfully finding a great surgeon in Germany. And uh, so, yeah, I had to learn how to walk again. It took me about a year. So, wow, that's that, that yeah, so that's what yeah. I mean. I, I was never planning to do what I do now. That was yeah. not on the cards. This came a lot faster than I thought.
2: Yeah, and I think that's that's actually pretty true for our listeners. You know, just look. You may not think. Well, some people might be thinking, "Oh, I need to prepare for something, or oh, I'm not ready yet." And oh. I don't think, I don't think we are ever going to be ready for anything, right? So, no, exactly right. And and that's the,
1: I'd say that's the best gift that i have out of doing what i did i think anybody who does any extreme sport or action sport even if you go mountain bike riding or rock climbing or skydiving where you have to face your mortality and i had to do it every day you don't take things for granted because anything can happen at any time and i always prepared for that but being prepared for it and going through it are still two very different things Thanks so much, Dennis, for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to have you here. Now, whereabouts in the world are you today? I'm in New York City, right smack in the middle. Smack in the middle. What does smack in the middle mean?
3: So there's like, uh, I don't know how well you know New York or your listeners know New York, but there's an uptown and a downtown and there's boroughs, five different boroughs in the city. I'm in the, right in the center of Manhattan, sort of, or just, just a little bit north of the center of Manhattan. So kind of midtown is where all the work happens or when people used to go to the office, that's where all the work offices are. And I live just a little bit north of that. So kind of a, the, the, a big hubbub of activity.
2: Yeah, interesting. And when you say they used to go the, to the office, it's, it's really interesting how things have changed. So in, in where you are right now in New York City, there are people going to this office? I mean, how, much are, how many are going to the office, in other words, percentage-wise? Or is the city look, sounding, feeling a little bit more of a dead city, if I can put it that way?
3: Yeah, it's a great question and it changes a little over time. I feel like the city the city life has come back and it's it's vibrant again and it's super hard to get restaurant reservations and you see just people out and about at the parks are full. I mean, it's wintertime now, so it's a little colder, but up until then you saw people coming back out. So people are certainly out and about, but I don't think people are coming into the office as much. And I think a lot of people are, you know, at least half the week, some people more than that. There are some industries like banking, for example, in New York, where they really want people in every day. And so there's those, I think, exceptions. They're kind of outliers. All the tech workers, people that I know are, you know, home as much as they're in the office and they have a lot more flexibility. And I think there's just, this is something we can get into in the in the conversation, but there's a, that's really something for companies to figure out is what is this, what does this look like moving forward? Mm. What are the policies? Do they leave it up to the employees? Are they going to be rigid about what they want, and and uh, so it's really interesting to see. But a lot of people at home and getting really comfortable being at home.
2: Mm-hmm. It's amazing how the dynamics have gone from no, you can't work at home; you have to work from work from the office, and then gone because of the pandemic the other way around, and now trying to swing back again. But it's not sort of swinging back too well. And some some organisations are handling it very well, and others are struggling. And it's really interesting to see the whole dynamic play out as we see it going going forward. So we'll see what happens there. So any
3: gone? No, no, you go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to, I was going to say that's exactly right. Yeah. Perfect summation.
2: Hey, the other thing here, Ernie, is I've given the, the listeners already an introduction to you on the show. Now you've got a vast experience here as a media executive for 20 plus years of experience. Tell us a little more about your background.
3: I grew up in Boston, which is, again, I don't know where your readers are, but not that far from New York. Well, Boston and New York are actually rivals, sort of sports rivals. So I grew up in Boston and then went away to college and spent a couple of years living in Japan, teaching English right after college, and then came back and knew I wanted to be a reporter. So I went to journalism school and then I did what, I'm not sure if this is the track these days, but back in the day, the track was you sort of worked at a bunch of smaller media companies as you tried to work your way up to different kinds of publications. And so I did that. I lived in five or six different cities and and then uh, lived in LA and San Diego and Chicago and Washington and, and then moved to Hong Kong and worked for the Wall Street Journal. And I stayed at the Wall Street Journal for 10 years, both in Hong Kong and in New York as an editor, managing reporters and managing sections of the paper and managing coverage areas, helping to launch new sections. And then in 2008, I was interested in getting more experience in digital media. And the journal was one of the early media companies to digital. They had a site and a site that they charged money for, more importantly, in like the 90s. Again, way before other people were thinking about it. This is when people were still thinking digital was just a, something that was going to, it was a flash in the pan. It was going to go away. It was a, it was a trend, but not a, not a permanent trend. And so they had a site and a successful site. I really wanted to be, get experience with something that was more natively digital. And so I went and started working at digital media startups and spent the next decade working at digital media startups, kind of in a editorial strategy, content strategy kind of role. So again, managing content and, and teams of content producers across all different kinds of medium. So text, of course but video and email newsletters and podcasts and social and all kinds of things like that. A couple of years ago, I joined Pioneering Collective where I work now. I'm a, I'm a strategist at Pioneer Collective. And so I work with leaders of all kinds, mostly business leaders on their personal brand, personal communications, helping to kind of build the brand, clarify the brand, and then amplify it through all kinds of different communications. So we do a lot of thought leadership articles and help some people write books and launch podcasts. We also do strategic introductions and we do all kinds of coaching for them. So it's a, it's a great job and a great opportunity to meet a lot of really interesting
2: leaders. Oh, wow. What a fascinating background and the things that you do today as well. I just got a quick question here, which is burning since you said it was living in New York and being coming from Boston. Do you walk down the road with a baseball cap with a big B on it or do you <laughs> have the NY on yours?
3: You know, I, I still have the B on mine and I don't have a problem with it, but it's interesting. My kids were born in New York and so they've grown up hearing me talk about Boston sports teams, and I, I don't envy them going to school and, and talking about Boston teams. They, they're, pretty, they're pretty bold, They have to say. They're not afraid to tell their friends that they're a Boston fan, but uh, it's, I, I've stuck to my guns. I'm a, I'm a Boston fan through and through.
2: Yeah, that's cool. Now, you've seen, based on what you just shared with us about your background, a lot of transition in the media industry going from pre-digital into digital and to things like podcasts and things like that. What was that transition like for you of seeing it over the years of the experience that you've got? How was it?
3: Really interesting, I think. I I just enjoyed being there when things were emerging. I, I think when you see things emerging, unless you're one of these super smart, innovative, ahead of the curve thinkers, and they exist in all different industries, I think most people don't know if six new platforms pop up or six new formats in media pop up. I don't think most people know which ones are going to be there in 10 years and which aren't going to be there in 10 years. And so there's a lot of sort of experimentation in those early years and trying to sort of, I'll call it dabbling, although maybe that's not the right word, but sort of have a finger in, in some different things that are going on so that you can, you can be there when these things, when one or two or three of them do emerge and are sustainable. But I, it's so interesting to see, you know, I, There was a long period when media, there was very little innovation in media. It was at least in the US, all each market was controlled by a newspaper to a a, a couple TV stations, a couple radio stations. And if you wanted to get a story out or get advertising out, you had to go through one of those gatekeepers. And then suddenly in a really short period of time, probably in, I don't know, five or 10 years, the landscape had absolutely shifted first with blogging and then with you know, all kinds of different things like social and podcasting. And now it's, it's really, it's almost the inverse of what it was. I mean, of course, there's still top publications where people that are real influence shapers, but the, the landscape is so fractured and there's a lot of people essentially creating their own media. They're not part of any companies, they're influencers and they, and they're creators and they have the ability to bring audiences and, 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 and develop monetization. And so we really, in the 20 years that I've been in the business, gone from, I think, flipped completely the model. And of course, one thing that hasn't changed, well, I think in the, in the 20 years ago, if you were at one of those quasi-monopolistic media companies, you did pretty well, I think, because you had a lock on the market. What's happened now is that there's been a real renaissance, a real opening up of the media, and that's great. It's it's really hard to make money. And so that's the the caveat here is that Anybody can put their shingle out and be, have a, have sort of a media business or a platform, but it's, it's not really easy for anybody to, to make it a going concern.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's obvious that the whole industry has been disrupted, of course, over time. And, and it's amazing to see that whole transition happen and, and where it's gone. And, and Ernie, I know that you've actually launched your podcast as well. And it's called, You Said What? Tell us a little bit more about the podcast.
3: Sure, it's I'm 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 a I'm a real newbie, Dennis. Next to you, I know you have a 380 episodes or whatever it is now. I've I think 25, so I'm I'm still I'm a baby. But it's a podcast about we. I talk to guests about the most important conversations and written interchanges in their lives, and you know it's the it's it can be with anybody. It can be with a child, with a parent, with a boss, with a coworker, with a significant other, with a stranger. And it's really trying to figure out, trying to talk to people about which of those communications experiences really stuck with people and why and sort of how did they, in some cases, kind of change their worldview about things. And so I, like you, like to interview people and like to learn. And so it's a great excuse for me to meet people from different walks of life. I've had ex-NFL football players on, Broadway actors, founders and CEOs, private investigators, all different kinds of folks. And it's just, it's been interesting for me to A, hear their stories, but B, also kind of think more about what kinds of conversations do stick with us. And it's not always the most obvious things. It's not always, you know, sometimes you know, you're going to have a profound conversation with somebody. And of course it ends up being meaningful and profound. And then other times there's moments where you don't necessarily think anything's going to happen and suddenly something happens and stays with you for years. And so I find that really interesting. There's, there's, there's depth. What I found is there's, there could be a lot of depth in sort of small communications moments and you don't always know it's going to happen.
2: Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's, those, it's almost like those turning points in life, right? There's those things that happen and they do stay with you for a long, long time, but they also can be life-changing situations or moments or words or whatever that is. And it's amazing where, where things go that we weren't expecting it. So.
0: For your listeners, I'm going to entertain them a bit. I'm outside Washington, D.C. I'm just about six
2: miles north of the White House in a town called Chevy Chase, Maryland. Wow, that's awesome. And so you're pretty close to the White House. That's even better, too. I mean, that's pretty cool. It's very fun. And and people, I don't know in New Zealand if Chevy Chase, the actor, has gotten there. But I promise. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. And so I think we actually even had a restaurant here as well called Chevy Chase. But that's pretty cool that's, yeah. you know, the, the town came first. I always like to clarify. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 That's true. Okay, cool. Good to know. And so that's where you're on this part of the world. Now I've given the listeners a little bit of an introduction to you. What we'd like to know, Jim, is a little bit more about you, about your background. What would you like to share? Dennis, I think for anyone listening to me, especially
0: for the first time, I always like to describe myself as a five and dime behavioralist. And what I mean by that is I've learned about human behavior by interacting with people. You know, I, I'm not an academic. I don't sit in the, the ivory towers of, of large institutions. You know, I'm, I'm from humble beginnings. I have worked with people through politics, through consumer marketing, to finding myself working in governance and compliance, trying to change human behavior, not just about voting or buying more product, but doing it ethically, And then for the last seven years, I've been focused on sustainability where I'm trying to drive human behavior for good. And I always emphasize I do that both in permanence and impact. And I do that in my life's work. So whatever I'm doing, whether I'm working with my partner, Emily, raising our two boys, or I'm trying to convince someone to drive an electric vehicle, you know, no matter what I'm doing, I'm trying to get people to think about how they're going to change that behavior to help society and themselves live a better, fuller life.
2: And do you, I mean, Jim, you're just sharing this quite fascinating because I think a lot of times that people struggle with change or or not sure about change and things like that. How do you, as part of that, helping them with their behaviors and so forth, how do you help them go through that journey of change? Mm. You know, Dennis, change is the only thing I know.
0: And I think if we're ever honest with ourselves, it's all any of us know. And yeah. it's just increasing, right? I, I started my career as a sales rep. And I learned the ABCs of cells. Do you know what that is? Have you heard that before? I've heard it, but can you just explain it for the listeners? Always be closing, right? You know, and, and I think about when you talk about change, for me, what is the you know, importance of change in life or even in leadership? And it's always be changing. Yeah. And the idea that we can never be complacent, even when I reflect back on my life, right? I was good for that moment in time, but I had to change for the next one. And I think that is what I try to encourage people. Let's not fear it. Let's embrace it. Let's be ready for it. And when it comes, we need to trust ourselves that we can adapt and evolve to where we need.
2: I I love that. I really do, because I think change is constant. We know that it is, and it's always happening. And the thing here for us is that we need to be always changing. And Jim, I think that as you're saying, you know, we go through change and embracing it is really important. But I think also that while we're going through that change, we're probably even preparing ourselves for the next change as well, but we probably don't actually understand that properly at first. Yep. Spot on. The other context I always try to talk about, right,
0: is we're human. Yep. And as humans, we try to control the natural systems, right? We, We create what I call the built systems that I shorthand Dennis as BS, right? We we create religion, we create work, we create societies that inherently don't benefit everyone equally. Mm. And so I, I'm thinking about where we are today as a society, we have to put the BS by stepping into it and changing it so that it is helping everybody and it's not just a few. So I do believe we don't know what we're doing because we don't know where we're headed. But the certainty of that Versus the clarity of we're moving forward, right? Is the important aspect of what we need to be embracing as we're, we're heading to the change. And what I love, you said this, Dennis, sometimes we're changing without even knowing it and it's preparing yeah. us for
2: Yeah, that's great. I, I think that's, that's really cool because there's probably somebody listening to this episode right now, whether it's right when we go live and release it or maybe further on down the track. And they're probably facing some change right now. And even if I think about large organizations in the IT sector, going through some massive layoffs and things like that. People are being faced with change. Now, the thing here is when we're in the midst of it, it's quite scary for some people because it's that unknown, the ambiguity where we're going. What can people do in your thoughts and opinions and your experience to help them ease that that tension or ease that nervousness or the and anxiety and so forth to help them through change? Any ideas? Yes. And and Dennis, I'll get very personal with you. In December of
0: 2019, I decided to leave a job that I loved and everyone said I was perfect for because I had come through and overhauled basic programs of environmental, social, and governance for the pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca. And I didn't just make minor changes. I took programs that either were non-existent or a legacy and transformed each of the ES&G into global industry leading. And I did it within three years. So it truly was neck breaking speed. Everyone said, how did you do it? And I did it by inspiring other people to accept their powers of change. And then when I got to that point, I realized I had done all I could. We had the 10-year strategy. So what was I going to do? I accepted a buyout. And it was going to happen in May of 2020. We, had, we were going to wait to announce it. But in January of 2020, we started hearing about a small little virus in China that eventually shut the entire world down. So my beautiful plan of transitioning and leaving, I wanted to stay with because I knew I had to trust my gut. But I went through a very sad period of personal crises and identity because I went from top of the world transformation change agent to the world shutting down and me being locked in my home as an extrovert. And I had to personally start to change and, and start to identify. So when change was happening to me that I had asked for, it felt as though it was all out of control. And so what I would tell anybody is when I had to keep reinforcing myself, and fortunately I had people who created the security net for me to, to mope around, cry, be upset, do all those things, but also grow up, Jim, this is what you wanted now create. And that's where my, I was born to build and create not sustain and maintain, that's not who I am. So anyone going through change right now, what I always come back to is realize change is happening around you, but the amazing part of who you are and what you are hasn't changed. It's giving you whatever it takes to be prepared for what is next. So be ready, but don't hold yourself back. I think 95% of the issue with change is in our head, but we like to project it to the world around us out of our control instead of saying i'm ready i got this this isn't my first time to manage change we've been doing it from the first time we entered the world so don't
2: forget to trust yourself that's my advice wow that is awesome and i think jim you know what you're sharing there about i think you said help me with the words inspired others other people that they had the power of accepting change i think is the words that you you said i love that but also trusting yourself right i mean when you, when you were told to sort of put your big boy's pants on and sort of grow up and then, you know, do what you need to do, what was the thing that sort of triggered you or helped you go from sort of, you know, that being upset, you know, all that change and probably struggling with it, then to actually project yourself forward and move forward? What, what was the sort of thing that could have helped you sort of trigger you to move forward and, and, and or leap forward?
0: My network, mm. knowing who I could talk to, who could show me the unconditional love to tell me to grow up. You know, it's that fine line, right, Dennis, is I didn't need someone telling me, oh, Jim, you're perfect. All is going to be fine. And I also didn't need anyone telling me to not sit with the uneasiness, to not sit with the sadness I was experiencing. And Mm so having people that, you know, have your interest at heart and also know when to kick you a bit, (laughs) to get you up, not kick you when you're down, but kick you to get up. Hmm. is it is an important network piece that won't happen overnight, but we all have those people. It's important we don't forget who they are, especially in those moments. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.